Uh, so now's your chance. If you haven't already and you're bursting with a question, please do hold it up and it will get collected and then it will pop up in front of me and I hope that I'll be able to get through quite a lot of your questions. Thank you to those of you who've started already because there are quite a few questions here. Um, I just want to, to start with one of them, which I think is um, a nice way to launch. Uh, I was struck at the end when, when you were talking about his death because accounts, uh, Melvin, don't they, they say that although they strangled Tyndale before they burned him, actually they didn't complete the job and he sort of came to as the flames got near, but that actually he remained completely silent through the actual death. And it's slightly haunting that somebody who'd spent his whole life focused around words and language and proclamation, uh, actually when it came to suffering for them, stopped them all. Um, the question here is, Tyndale's translation of the Bible, you said, replaced the duty to believe with the liberty to think. Have we forgotten this, asks the questioner. Would you like to start, Jane, on that? It's a very interesting question. Um, I mean, I would like to answer uh, no. I don't think we have forgotten that. Um, and I think uh, that what I'm suggesting, this great um, endeavor of reading the Bible together in the congregation, uh, is part of helping us go on thinking. Um, thinking is a very much a corporate exercise. We need to do it together. I mean, sometimes there's somebody like Brian McLaren would say that too often at the moment you either have uh, what he calls ignorance on fire or intelligence on ice. <laughs> and actually, uh, you're looking for people who are passionate about the commitment but passionate too about the questioning. Um, and that liberty to think sometimes is seen as an enemy within the church. Is that... I mean, it's very uncomfortable, clearly. Um, and I, I think it's... Um, obviously, most people who run churches would prefer people just to do as they were told, I mm. imagine. It does make life so much simpler. Um, but uh, the liberty to think is also the liberty to pray, the liberty mm. to engage, the liberty to um, serve. Um, and you, it's the liberty to form ourselves as increasingly Christ-like people in company, I don't think there's any getting round that liberty to think. I think, as, um, I'm sure Melvin would want to come on, in on this, but I, I, mean, I think there is always a strand in any institutional setting, not just in faith settings, um, of people who would rather be told what to do than have to take responsibility and think for themselves. Uh, and we see that in Christianity, but as I say, we see it in politics, we see it... Yeah, all over the place. Um, and so uh, maybe Tyndale is one of the great examples of making us realize that uh, if we don't take responsibility for our world, we can't complain when it's not the way we want it. The duty to believe and the liberty to think. Have we forgotten it? Well, I was quite pleased with that, really. Um, <laughs> I think there was a duty to believe, and there is in most religions for most of the time. Your duty is to believe what you are told by those in charge. And that still goes on throughout the world, as we all know. One of the things that the Reformation did in Europe and through Tyndall in this country was to basically put that to one side and say it was more important 
to understand, and in that understanding, be able to make up your own mind. And obviously, Tyndall thought that this would mean that your own mind would be made up to worship God. James quite right, you let the genie out of the bottle. But I want the genie to be let out of the bottle. And there's mostly good come from it. I can't think of much bad that's come from it. Because from the time of Tyndall's translation in this country, and Luther in Germany and so on, particularly in this country, the Bible turned into a political book. People saw in the Bible, gave them examples of, I can do that because it has been done. I can rebel here because it has been done. I can think these thoughts because they're in the Bible. It was a huge enabling document for people to change the way they lived, to think in terms of being, of being blessed are the poor instead of blessed are the rich. It was in terms of um, thinking in the terms of congregations of democracy rather than living in, a, in an autocracy. And so I think it was a major, major change. And to show how major it was, the Roman Catholic Church soon uh, cottoned onto it with the Counter-Reformation, and they accepted it too, because the Protestants had raced ahead so far in so many ways. So I do think it's a distinction, uh, uh, and I think, I think it's a useful one. Of course, other people can think differently. That's, that's fine, and uh, they may be right, they may be, but I don't think so. We see all around the world now where the duty to believe is taken people. The absolute duty to believe, if you do not believe, you will be destroyed. If you do not believe, you will be exiled from this state. You will be debilitated. And when we have liberty, well, of course, it comes with a thousand confusions. But those confusions can be fruitful, as we've seen, uh, can breed all sorts of uh, interesting and extensions to, to the mind and thought, can liberate us. It is a liberty, and I think the Bible was, in, uh, in its first stages, was a very great liberating book for many people. Uh, and it was for that reason that it was welcomed. And as for not being, the Bible not being, not really being for the plowboy, people, it's reported that when the book came, people would stay at church after, and read the Bible to scores and hundreds of people. They would read it aloud. They would do exactly what Tyndall intended them to do. Read it aloud to the people who could not read for themselves. And soon this country was full of people who knew chunks of the Bible by heart, although they couldn't read or could read only, only, only poorly, as it were. So it was, it's an, I, I, we haven't explored, well, because it isn't time, it's a tenth of the power of that. You could call it a document, you could call it a... Uh, a book of faith, which it is, it's these things and many others. But I do think the distinction is worth making, that people were released, were released from the bondage of having to believe or else. The or else took on a life of its own. And, and of course, that word believe, of course, can be used in two ways in the Christian community. You can believe that, you know, I believe that God exists. Or you can, I believe in God like I trust in God, like I, I believe in my GP. <laughs> I think uh, it's a bit different from the GP. And, well, but that sense that it's not about I believe that X, but I trust in. And uh, over the centuries, the, that word belief has been used in various different ways. Yes, but I think that the liberty to think is the liberty to think for yourself, is the liberty to think against mm. other people's thoughts. Yeah. And that's the, the liberty to argue, the liberty to say, was um, 
was Judas right? Well, of course, that's too easy. But was Judas right to argue about things? Henry VIII said some things which, in his rage, were true. One of the reasons he didn't want the Bible translated into English, he said, every potboy in the country mm. will come to know it as well as us. Well, he was right. Mm. They did. And that worried him. And, um, and of course, Tyndall actually wrote, I, I've been reading, as you can imagine, in preparation, and I, just to back you up here, the spiritual, he wrote, never leaveth searching till we come at the bottom, the pith, the quick, the marrow, and very cause why, and judgeth all thing, the sense of, of a sort of generous exploration into, into everything. But I think it, the, the temptation is to turn this into a story about individual heroic self-discovery. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's what Tyndale and the reformers thought. Mm. I, I don't think they thought that everybody was going to set out and make up their own faith. I think they thought this, the Bible is a richer way of working out how to think and what to believe. And that, that lovely picture that you just painted there, Melvin, of, of people uh, in, in their hundreds coming to hear the Bible read aloud, they came together to hear it read aloud. They probably talked about it. They didn't go away and think, okay, that means I can make up my mind about anything. Mm. Um, and I think that, that's part of the issue, is it's turned into a different kind of story uh, about the individual, which is not where it started. That doesn't mean, of course, where it starts and has to have to be where it ends, but I'd just like to explore where it started a bit. So you think it's a bit of a sort of post-enlightenment take on Tyndale a bit? I, that's my suspicion, mm -hmm. yes. Let's get on with another question, um, talking about being coerced into belief. There's a lot of questions coming in about Sir Thomas More, um, because Peter <laughs> if you read your Peter Ackroyd or if you yeah. go to see A Man for All Seasons, you might have a, a rather strong view in favor of Thomas More. Uh, but there are questions here, uh, should history review uh, and should history's judgment on Sir Thomas More change in his response to Tyndall? Shouldn't Tyndall be made the saint and not More, says somebody. Uh, tell me about your, your reading of More in all this. Um, would you like to? Well, Thomas More was one of the most extraordinary men of his age. He wrote Utopia in 1516, which was, let's call it, Europe, a European success, and drew him to the attention of great scholars like Erasmus of Rotterdam, and he became part of that enchanted uh, pre-enlightenment, enlightenment circle. He was a brilliant man, a very ambitious man, uh, and he went, up, he went up the ladder. But it seems uh, proved, without much contested argument, that when he took over the job as it were, the mission that Henry V gave him to eradicate Tyndall, he had a sort of, I mean, to be kind, he went mad. Or he saw it through in a reasonable way which led him to do the most extraordinary, malicious, Charles Lamb's word, and terrible things. Um, now, he would have thought we have to say that, look, he's got this man who's read Tyndall's books, who is therefore a Protestant, who is therefore against the king, who is therefore against the state, who will therefore bring down the state, and therefore it's my duty to get the truth out of him. And when I get the truth out of him, I can sentence him to death in the tower because we, he will have spoken the truth, he can repent his sins, and I'll have saved his soul in a way. There's that form of argument. The other is that it was a massive, massive deterrent the show trials, the burnings, the laming in the tower with torture. This was a massive deterrent. 
Uh, and this, this descent into scatology, <coughs> I think that everybody in this cathedral would be astounded if I were to read four sentences. Um, and I'm not going to, I don't, I'm not, but, but it's extraordinary that the way that that, he used that language to carry, to carry the reasons, to carry his thoughts. What did he need it for? He was a beautiful linguist. What did he want to do that for? Uh, I thought he wanted to do it because he's in a kind of frenzy. And then it's, it's tormented because, of course, he held to his principles at the end. And it's curious that he and Tyndall were executed, as it were, quite near in time to each other. He's a complicated man, but it, I think this, the, the exploration of Tyndall has um, seen him as a far less attractive man than most of us had seen him up to that day, simply because what is his reaction to Tyndall had simply not been taken into account at all, and now it has to be. Jane, are you the president of the Thomas More Society? <laughs> Um, I probably was until reading Wolf Hall, um, which is where the, um, the, the anti-Thomas More movement sort of um, began for me. I certainly grew up with um, this, with the, what we've all been told all through history, this wonderfully witty, wise, charming, um, intelligent uh, um, man with a, a lovely father. I mean, he, the, the family life, um, his daughters obviously idolized him. Um, uh, and uh, 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 and so trying to sort of blank out, as it were, that um, killing for the faith, which uh, I, as a theologian, want to say is never acceptable. It's never going to serve the purpose of a, of, of a God who chooses when he becomes human to die on the cross. I don't see how you can serve the purposes of that God by killing people for faith. Um, and, and, and there you see the real problem of, um, that, that Moore had of um, putting together a certain kind of authority um, that needed to be defended in that kind of way uh, with his faith. Um, and that's a very modern perspective to be able to bring. Mm. What it felt like to be Moore with all that wisdom and charm and, and yet certainty that you do need to kill heresy. I don't know, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? There's uh, about three questions that have come in that are in the same area, and they're quite personal questions. They're wanting to know, really, at the, at why you got interested in this, in this man and what effect he's had on your own lives. I mean, why should we gather here and, and, and remember him? Um, but also a little bit closer to home, what got you first drawn to this? You know, what was the magnet? Well, I realized when the um, anniversary of the, uh, the 1611 Bible uh, came into sight, 2011, I realized that there would be either very few books or they would be dismissive of the Bible. And although I distanced myself from a very strong Christian upbringing, I still have... Uh, great uh, sympathies with a great deal of it. The, what I think the things that matter to it are strong with me. The things that I don't understand or can't credit, the resignation, the, the resurrection, miracles and that, they just have to be to one side. And I thought that this would be very unfair and thought, I wondered if I could track through the impact that the Bible had had on life around the world. And I wrote the book about the 
book that changed the world, which it did. And I found more and more and more ways in which it changed the world, changed societies, changed education, changed this, changed that, democracy. And it really did. Not time to go into it, but it was an astonishing, an astonishing impact. It had more impact than any war. Astonishing impact. So I therefore got interested in the Bible, and I therefore got interested in Tyndall, which I didn't realize. Uh, Tyndall, who had contributed so much to the Bible. And then I got fascinated by Tyndall. And he was in, I did a history of the English language, and he was in that, and something else was in that. And then I did a film with him with a very good te- television producer called Anna Cox. We did a film of Tyndall and went into places he'd been to in the Low Countries, and that was exciting. And then it was SPCK who asked me to do one of these brief lives. I wanted to write about Tyndall, but there was a magnificent book by Aniel, which um, I couldn't match, and I didn't have the intellectual resources or, or well, or pa- any power to do it. But 25 to 30,000 words I thought I could manage. Um, and that's why I very much wanted to do it. And the more I studied him, because writing a short book is just as hard work as writing a long book, I can tell you. Um, I just, there, there was so much in him that was fine, and there's so much in it that was platted. He wasn't just a contrite, holy person. Not, nothing wrong with being a contrite, holy person. But he was this dynamic man who gone, went from printer to printer. He was determined to do things. He changed things. He took risks. He, he knew that his friends were being burnt and that. And he, was being, he wanted to come back and help them. But they were telling him, don't, because you'll just be burnt. You'll be no help to anybody. They've put it in rather better prose than that. But that's what was going on. I became fascinated by him. Then gradually, when uh, people began to say, look, this man had greater influence on the language than Shakespeare, and we can prove it. So it went on from there, and I thought that we have been, we have been in, as it were, in our mythology of our island. We've missed this man, who might well be the greatest man, person, man, in our, in our story. So I was fascinated for historical reasons, for tribute to my past uh, religious reasons, for reasons of language, and reasons of the power of the book, the power of thought, and the cleverness of radicalism inside, inside the camouflage of something else. That use of the word ecclesia, to mean congregation and not church, was dynamic, and they didn't like it. They didn't like the fact that they got church back as soon as they could. They didn't like it because they knew what it meant. It meant all this wasn't, didn't matter very much. What mattered was the individual's direct relationship with God, justification through faith, faith alone. So I became increasingly fascinated with him um, for those reasons and will continue to be. So I did the best I could in, with this book. And Jane, can I ask you about your response as a person of faith, what, how important he's been and, and what draws you to him? Um, I, mean, I suspect I'm one of the people that, that Melvin has been converting. Um, I didn't know much about Tyndale. Um, I, uh, uh, I knew him as part of the history of uh, translation of scripture. Um, I grew up in a missionary family in South India, um, and so it's part of my DNA that the, the Bible in all languages is part of how faith grows all over the world. I'm a passionate lover of the Bible. Um, I, I, I find it just endlessly draws me into something that reminds me I'm not the center of the universe, and that's not a bad thing. Um, but Tyndale himself, I mean, it, it's a fascinating, just a really fascinating story, which I did not know enough about. Um, uh, so thank you, Melvin. 
He was a bit of a sort of sort of 16th century James Bond in many ways. <laughs> I mean, he, he was very good at hiding. We still don't know where he was for a number of uh, occasions. I mean, Brilliant. Actually, we don't know what he looked like. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, quite. Um, now, there are some more questions here, uh, and thank you for, they're all coming in. Uh, a, 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 quite a gaggle of questions about what we can apply from our knowledge of Tyndale to the present church and to the, uh, and if we focus that bunch of questions around the whole idea here of, he, he talked about the word of God. This was, this was important. This was passionate for him because it was the word of God. But of course, all these centuries later, uh, for many people, um, talk of the Bible or the word of God, let's take Muir, the Orkney poet, who says, you know, for him, God is just three angry letters in a little black book. How some people are asking, how can we almost defamiliarize people and refresh a new understanding of what word of God might mean today? Because frankly, this Bible has been abused as well as loved, and its words have been weaponized as well as proclaimed in, in charity. So how can we call people back to the word of God today? Is that for me? I think it is. So kind, thank you. Um, Answers, please, on a postcard, <laughs> anybody else? I, I, I want to start with the point that I made um, earlier, which is that the word of God um, is Jesus, Jesus Christ, the, the Son. That is um, the word that God speaks, um, and, uh, uh, and, it, and the word of God, the Bible, bears witness to that ongoing um, presence and action of God in our world. Um, and so um, any divorce of uh, the Bible from uh, the lived word, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Spirit who's constantly with us, any divorce between what we read and how we live suggests we're not reading carefully. Uh, and that's, again, one of the things that is so clear in Tyndale. He expected it to be important enough to shape his whole life. Um, it's not just something that he did in his study and that he thought, okay, well, it's getting a bit dangerous, I'm going to put it away. It, it was so important that he had to live it. Um, and and I, I think that bring that back into connection, that the Bible is a, is, a, is a book that draws us into a way of living in the world as though God were real, as though God were here, as though we are going to be held to account for what we do to each other and to our world. Um, I think that might be a, a good tribute to Tyndale. And as a sympathetic observer to the church, what lessons, if any, would you say the current situation could learn from him? Well, there's an immense amount in Tyndale which is quite wonderful about the way we should behave what we should aspire to, about wisdom about life and thoughtfulness. And there's an overall idea in, say, the Sermon on the Mount, which is not replicated anywhere, really. So all that is fine. I think the great difficulty that a lot of people meet is connecting this with somebody or something called God. 
It's that connection. And that's very, uh, some people do it and uh, one envies them. Good. But some people can't or won't. And for them, that's the problem. The problem isn't what's in the book. The problem is that the book comes from some person, source, uh, in which they, to which they can't give authority or credibility. Mm. Mm. And can I just ask then, because uh, I'm just trying to get through as many of these <laughs> as I can, can I just ask Jane, the problem of, here's the Bible, it's in our hands, it's in my language, it's now, you know, the, the pot boy or the plough boy has, has got it. But then, you know, that's, that's only the beginning of the problem, isn't it? Because, you know, if you study scriptures, you know that there's a, you need to understand quite a lot of the, of the background in order to understand what's in front of you. And, you know, a lot of people would say that um, a text without context can easily become a pretext. <laughs> Put it that way. Um, did Tyndale cause a lot of headaches by what he did, is what I'm saying. Is it, are we oversimplifying this? Oversimplifying? Well, uh, you've used the word romance. Yes. Um, but from the church point of view, there was a lot of resistance. Of course, the, the sadness is it was only three years later that Henry VIII was putting the Great Bible in English. In I was putting the Great Bible out when? In, in, when, all, when in all the churches. Before Tyndall was murdered. Yes. Oh, right, yes. So, uh, nevertheless, it, it's caused problems. And do we forget that sometimes? Can we be a bit romantic about the Bible? Oh, I mean, I'm sure we can be romantic about anything if we try hard enough. But, I mean, the, the, it is nonetheless um, a necessary headache, I think. Uh -huh. um, I, 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 it's, it's just hard to imagine... Um, how faith could go on growing and spreading all over the world in lots and lots of different forms of the Christian church without this uh, glorious Bible. And I think, um, I think it, it, again, we're terrified, it seems to me, of, of um, variety um, and, uh, and sort of feel there should be just one right way of reading everything. Um, Whereas actually, if it's a way of reading that it makes us live differently, um, think about, for example, the um, groups of women reading the Bible for the first time and realizing the trust that Jesus put in women uh, and realizing that actually they are called to be not just wives and mothers, but disciples mm. in the scriptures. That's, that's a life-transforming insight that, that goes on and causes other kinds of headaches. Um, and... Uh, but but probably necessary ones. Mm. Um, so I think um, one of the things that I find important about the Bible is a very fear-denying book. It sort of says, step into this big, dangerous, exciting world uh, in which um, you take for granted that God is uh, that it is God's world, and see what it's like. It isn't doesn't promise to be a simple. Mm way of living or a simple solution to things uh, or to offer just one answer to, to each person. And, and that spiritually difficulty could be more important than we first realise. Um, not only spiritual, I mean in every walk of life difficulty is difficulty. opportunity, isn't it? Yes, and potential change. Yes, I mean wanting, to be, wanting everything to be simple is, is, um, is the coward's way. 
There's a question here for you, Melvin. Would the Tyndale translation ever have happened um, with Erasmus and Luther? So was Tyndale a product of his time, or was time a product of Tyndale? Without what I didn't get that. I think he was part of his context, yes. I mean, mm. he, <coughs> I think that, can I just go back to God for a second? Just I want to finish the last thing. Feel free. <laughs> is the, I do think that there is still a first cause. That's perhaps because I've been brought up in, with a causal education. I do think that there was a start to things, just like Newton did far, not mentally, mentally bigger brains than I ever had. I do think there's a cause to things. Now, whether we're going to find out over the next five or six hundred years or two or three thousand years, if that causes a particular intelligence, it will be fascinating for those alive to follow it. And it may well be on what we call intelligence, because it, in many ways it is a very intelligent universe. At the same time, it doesn't seem to make a great deal of sense on certain other grounds. So there is a first cause. So the idea of going for the mystery of the first cause is something I'm completely, uh, I am fascinated by. And it's happened again and again since people worship the nearest mountain, the nearest tree, to people talking about the Big Bang, which I think is every, could be just at the end of something as much as the beginning of something. And nobody knows. And Martin Rees agrees with that, so I'm standing on reasonably firm, well, totally firm ground there. So I believe in that. Uh, but whether that can emanate what we think emanates from God in this extraordinary way that Christians have had, and in different ways, people have in different religions. I, I can't, I can't go, go along with that. Now I've forgotten the question you asked me. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll remind you, but as you speak, I'm reminded that there, at the end of the 20th century, I think it was in the 60s, a French worker priest was once asked, why on earth did you get ordained in the late 20th century? What a bizarre, perplexing thing to do. What on earth did you do it for? And he said, I got ordained in order to stop the rumor of God disappearing from the face of this earth. And as you talk, I hear somebody who approves of the rumor of God being around. I, I tend to think it's true. You are unsure. I think people like us can often agree, however, that that rumor of God, it, that the world is probably better with that rumor than without it. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> yes. There's, there's, there's a dark side of the moon that we haven't spoken about. But the question yes. about Erasmus, Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched. That was a thought, yes. wasn't it? Yes. Uh, and Luther laid the, laid the egg that Tyndall hatched. So let's take the three of them. And they certainly made a brilliant and successful attempt to completely <laughs> disrupt, revolutionize, and turn on its head all that was theologically and philosophically happening in the West at that time. So they were connected. And um, Tyndall was very excited uh, that he might meet Erasmus when he went to Cambridge, but he didn't, but very excited by Erasmus's go for the Greek. And everybody at that time was rocked and impressed by Luther, this, this quite extraordinary impact, impact he had, um, uh, and so on. So yes, the, whether it's chicken, egg, egg, chicken, I have no idea. But people tend to come out of their time, and then they shape their time. We all come out of our time. Some of us then go on to shape it. And uh, Tyndall both, he came out of that. All I would say, not against that, but as a, as a back to square one thing, is he did from the, if we are to believe him, and I would never not believe Tyndall, 
and that when he was a boy, he was fascinated by the idea of the Bible in English because the Saxon king had translated bits of the Bible into English, and it struck him, and he wanted to do that. Just like when he went to the fair, Newton got the prism at the country fair, and he saw the light, and that struck him. And away he went, into optics. So it's a, it's a very good question, chicken and egg. It's a very good question, and I've got no answer. <laughs> Final question that's come in uh, for, for you, Jane. Should Tyndall be made a saint? What does that mean? Um, um, well, Frank Muir once said the definition of a saint is a dead sinner who's been dug up and edited. <laughs> <laughs> Should Tyndale be remembered, admired, um, emulated? Yes, in all kinds of ways, mm. I think. Um, should we pray to him or uh, have... Uh, I mean, it depends what you mean by a saint. Mm. So. But... Good Anglican Let's put it another way. He ought to be reclaimed more. I mean, Melvin has said culturally he's been forgotten. Uh, others took his place. Even when the Great Bible came out, his, his name and his portrait's completely missing. And in a sense, that's emblematic, perhaps, of what's happened, that he has become... Well, Tyndall's coming home now. He's coming home now, due to I, you. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 please no. don't. No, please no, don't no, it, no, no, absolutely not. I, no, I, I can't. I reject that. It's not mm. true in the slightest. And scholars started in the mid-19th century, and there's been a steady build from scholars here and in America and in Holland and so on. He's, 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 he, he isn't, because there's not a flashness about him. It isn't easy to bring forward. I think he doesn't need to be a saint. I mm. think he's good as he is. Yes. And I'm not sure that he would have liked to be a saint, would he, given his... <laughs> yes. I think he'd rather we read the Bible than made him a saint. Yeah, yeah, yes, indeed. I think we should teach Tyndall's English as a second language in our schools. Mm. It is eight o'clock, and I want, to, I want to end, if I may, with something I just found um, a couple of days ago. Uh, by chance, it was in the Poetry Island Review of, of five years ago, and it's written by a poet called Neil Curry, who happened to go to the castle where you were talking about you filmed his imprisonment, Bill Border. Uh, and he wrote this. He just called it to William Tyndale. In the beginning was the word, but the words, variously, were Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, not to mention Aramaic, and that, as you saw it, was the problem. Why, you wanted to know, should not the husbandman who driveth his plough sing them out loud in the fields, or the weaver warble them as he works at his shuttle? As I write this to you in late September 2010, I wonder how often next year it'll be acknowledged that great swathes of the authorized version had been cribbed directly from you. In one of his more frosty seasons, Thomas More described your work as the most pestiferous and pernicious poison. And I suspect that Lancelot Andrews and his committee men will get all the credit for the apple of his eye, for a land flowing with milk and honey and the salt of the earth. Arrested in Antwerp and found guilty of heresy, you were sentenced to be burned at the stake, 
and only at the last minute did the hangman, as an act of mercy, step up to tighten the cord and garret you before he lit the fire. Oh yes, blessed are the merciful, for they shall... How did you put it? I forget. We have been immersed in an exploration of a quite truly remarkable man with two remarkable people. And I want to thank on your behalf both Melvin Bragg and Jane Williams for bringing both their learning, their passion, and their insight to a wonderful evening. Thank you so much indeed. Thank you.